those of you who don't know, I just got back from the first ever <laughs> Timbers hat trick game. Uh, there's like a whole thing going on in my life. I'm like a nerd about a specific kind of soccer team apart from this like complicated board game. And today was our Christmas, I will say. We won in the Champions League with a historic win. Uh, we have our first hat trick since 2013, which occurred in the Open Cup. All of this doesn't matter. I hope it doesn't make the edit. But what I want to say to Jake and Kyle is that I prepared earlier today, but I had a whole other very eventful day that has kind of jarred me from being able to uh, be the lead of this uh, script I wrote. <laughs> well, that is such great news for the Timbers. As a Portland Timbers fan, like yeah. I've been thirsty for a hat trick for a long time and so I'm, I'm really happy that it it finally came to be i was able to watch some of the highlights and uh shout out to yimmy chara you know if you're listening to this podcast you you just had a great night friend <laughs> oh oh my gosh you guys have no idea people threw their hats onto the field uh it was the first time there were fans back at the timber stadium and a spontaneous chant of fuck seattle just like occurred in the stadium for no reason it was fantastic because you weren't playing seattle no, we were playing a team from Honduras. Yeah, right. not not Seattle at all. But, but they need to know we hate our neighbors. Just the first time we were all back together, the thing that really <laughs> got us all on the same page was fuck Seattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think of that's course. how Portland unifies is in an equal hatred for uh, Washington State cities. Absolutely. Well, Vancouver, we kind of stole. Straight up, yeah, but no one want no one in Portland wants to own Vancouver or no, but everyone Vancouver. in Vancouver is like, I live in Portland. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? that's true. That's true. <laughs> As someone who went to high school in Vancouver, I tell everybody I'm from Portland. Right. For sure. I mean, that's mm-hmm. those few listeners who are not living in the Pacific Northwest. This is actually Vancouver, Washington, not Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. That's uh, right. Vancouver, Washington is a tiny town right across the Columbia River from Portland, <laughs> and uh, it's Portland's Jersey City. Is what it is. <laughs> Very much. It's a city that requires you um, to reference another city when defining it. <laughs> <laughs> At least one. I just used two. Yeah. It truly is the Paris, Texas of Washington State. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I do think that it is as important to define the city of Vancouver, Washington, as it is to spend a long time analyzing the strategic depths of dominance victories. <laughs> That's right. This episode of Woodland War Machine, we're talking about the dominance victory slash coalitions. It's going to be a crazy one. Um, but before we get into any of the actual subject of this week's episode, we've got some root news. Yeah, some <laughs> very exciting announcements coming your way. Uh, most, I would say, like top of the list, the thing that we are all super excited about is... Uh, Root Digital uh, by Direwolf Digital is releasing the Riverfolk expansion on the 27th of April. Ah! Lizards are coming. All right. And this um, this whole conversation on dominance that we're going to have today is going to become even less relevant to those <laughs> digital players because the lizards are now in the game and they can stop a dominance victory like nobody's business. <laughs> the lizards truly are the Vancouver, Washington of, uh, of root factions. <laughs> How dare you, sir? How dare you? 
Vancouver's um, yeah, great. This is going to be huge for the digital scene, though. I feel like anyone who's been like a little like ho hum about playing Root on the app recently because of the lack of variety is going to jump right back in because these are some of the two factions that make the game the most dynamic. Honestly, if I'm gonna, if I'm being real right now with you all, Sam, um, I appreciate you getting real right now. I just want to be real with everybody listening. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I do think that. Uh, a lot of people talk about which expansion should you get in which order, and River Folk is kind of like last in that situation because it it doesn't have an extra map. It doesn't, you know, it just has the two factions and like kind of the bot that was already beat by the Clockwork expansion. But I will say that the otters and the lizards really do add a lot to the game, and I'm really excited to see what it does to the digital game, considering it's the one with the the communication breakdown of that small chat. So. Is it fair to say that the otters and the lizards are also kind of underdogs in the root world right now a little bit? I would say that the lizards definitely are and that the otters are definitely the like secret winners of most things. <laughs> yeah. it, and depending on how they implement it, uh, we've got some theories going over on our Woodland War Machine Discord page about how exactly this will be implemented. It, it could be the case that players who are not used to playing with the Riverfolk Company will at first overspend and then overstarve and sort of we're, we're gonna watch the kind of whiplash of the meta surrounding the river folk happen in real time kind of again if you've been playing root for a long time uh so this actually is going to be quite interesting i think Uh, The other thing I wanted to say is that this is a a perfect moment to appreciate uh, how the designers of Root have to playtest each new faction against, like, all the others in a milieu of, you know... So it exponentially increases uh, with every new faction they add. So, you know, hats off to all the playtesters out there. And speaking of new factions, we have some additional news about the newest of the new factions. (laughs) That's the Rats and the Badgers. Uh, yep. Lord of the Hundreds and the, the Keepers in Iron. That's right. Uh, they just released a new version of these factions. I don't actually know how much the rats have changed. I kind of paid more attention to all the changes with the badgers, which are like pretty significant to the mechanics of how they work. But all of this is just so exciting. Like This is such a huge update on the version of the badgers we've been presented with. A version of the badgers that are in a tournament that you were playing today. Kyle and uh it's it's wild to imagine uh that these badgers have changed so much and and they can still continue to change this expansion is changing before our eyes it's wonderful to see absolutely and if you are interested in getting for yourself uh, a copy of the marauder expansion hop on over to the kickstarter page which we will link in the description of this episode and uh Make yourself a pledge because late pledges are now open. Yeah, it's still technically open for purchase. And then with the hirelings too, those are like – tell me quickly, quickly, how does that work in terms of purchasing? Like you can get three of them or do you get all of them or how does that work with them? There is like a base uh, amount of hirelings that come in the Marauders expansion, mm-hmm. but there also is an add-on for additional hirelings. I think like the River Folk and the Lizard Cult, and there might be a couple neutral ones as well oh, nice. that come in the more hirelings add-on. More hirelings. Okay, cool. Boy, like not to backtrack too far, but the River Folk company and the Lizard Cults being added to the base root game because I know like some of our listeners are 
more heavily invested in digital because they can get games together, which is an easier thing to do on digital. That's really going to change the world for a lot of people, right? Like, I think I can say from my experience, I know the river folk will unquestionably because, you know, they add a whole new economy to the game, right? How would you guys say that the lizard folk change it? Well, I will get into it, how it affects dominance plays earlier today. But apart from that, the lizards have a couple trump cards on the other factions in that when any clearing that has a garden is ruled by the lizard cult, that is something that's going to trip up some bird players that aren't used to it. That's going to be something that is really going to impact the Woodland Alliance when they think their base is safe. Um, so those things are definitely going to be affected by the lizards. In addition, there's also extra Vagabond classes that are being added. And if you were a meme player that liked to take out the cats round one, boy, would I like to introduce you to the Vagabond class of the Scoundrel that basically gets to delete a clearing from the map. <laughs> so digital's going to get a little bit messy before it balances out again like yeah. kyle said but the combination of the otters being added with the scoundrel is going to mean some some people are going to be quitting early in those digital <laughs> games coming up my assertion is that maybe it won't ever balance out but it definitely <laughs> just got a lot more fun uh, <laughs> seriously yeah. any game where you have like one of the kind of like lesser used vagabond classes in already i'm like kind of excited to see what happens and when you just add some of the like chaotic elements into the game you know i things get shaken up and i think that's for the best when does the Exiles and Partisans deck get added into this mix? Because that's Ugh. like a separate expansion, right? That's yeah. not, I mean, not that you guys know what Direwolf Digital is planning, but like, is that part of the expansion from the Riverfolk or like adjacent to it? I'm hacking their servers right now, and uh, <laughs> it looks like they don't know. Um, yeah. So I don't know. And you're right, it is, it is a whole different thing. It's going to require a lot of uh, work on their end, I'm sure. You know, a lot of card effects are totally different in uh, the E&P deck. But that day cannot come soon enough. I love Agreed. the Exiles and Partisans deck. I think it balances the game a lot better. Yes, I feel like we've addressed it a few times of like, we're always more excited about the options in the Exiles and Partisans deck, and then we're always more intimidated by the options of the basic deck, because we're always worried about what other people will get as opposed to excited about the things we can get. That might not be rational, but it's with how the way I feel we always talk about. I think, I think that's, that's a, pretty a good instinct. Yeah, the base <laughs> yeah. deck. I feel like I'm always playing defense against yeah. like the crazy effects, and uh, yeah, I feel like I'm I'm pushing for a re really interesting game state with the ENP deck. Well, speaking of interesting game state, let's talk about dominance. Um, so why have this episode? Because I think some people will be like skip, but <laughs> I want to present the counter argument to skip. As the person who solicits the feedback from the people on the channel, it did feel like the channel was like, what are you talking about? That's not even something you should talk about. <laughs> it is not a viable way to win the game. And what I will say is, you're mostly right. But <laughs> there is, everyone who's listening to this has probably experienced a dominance victory and probably l losing to a dominance victory at some point as well. And these situations can happen in games. And it's important to recognize the situations where it seems more viable than usual and not. I've likened it to shooting the moon in hearts. Mm -hmm. 
It is not a situation with a high probability. It's not the situation you should go into the game thinking you're going to do. But when you get dealt your hand of cards, noticing if this is a hand of cards that means you should shoot the moon, we're going to tell you all the situations in route where that situation you might consider dominance. Yeah, and one of the reasons why I think it is important is because when dominance happens... And, you know, Root is crazy. There's going to be a situation where you're playing a game and someone's going to go for a dominance victory. When that happens, you got to know exactly what to do, how to respond to that kind of situation. Uh, Because I've also seen where people go for a dominance victory that's pretty ill-advised, but then the table doesn't respond appropriately. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I mean, I think it's basically our stance that no one should ever accomplish a dominance victory like <laughs> right. that's that's one of the you know outlier possibilities when we talk about the subject is like you actually do it but like in talking about it hopefully we're giving listeners a little bit of advice on the you know on the other end like how to approach this what are its weaknesses um and you know when might it work when might it be the exactly the thing to surprise the rest of the table I feel like one thing we've addressed a lot in this podcast, too, is talking about, like, the expectations of the community about, like, what should never be allowed to happen. But everything changes once we all sit down at this table and forget what's going on, right? (laughs) And so, like, it's not that people can sneak dominance victories by very easily because it's kind of a, a big deal when someone plays it. But it's more about, like, what are the situations at the table, not only that you can, uh that are favorable to taking a dominance, but like how can you make them more favorable to keeping a dominance and vice versa? If a situation is uh, viable for an opponent to take a dominance, what can you do to make it less viable besides the obvious, you know, just take the clearing or just take the dominance card <laughs> when it's available. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about dominance denial. We'll mention it. Cause that's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I think the, I think the shooting the moon analogy is great. And for those of you that don't know what shooting the moon is, it's actually, it's, it's in hearts. It's also in pinochle too. And a few other games, maybe dominoes is one, I think, but like it essentially means like going for a, a, a play that has almost no losses in it or like is a very ambitious goal that requires you to get it just right to win, which is exactly what a dominance victory is. Let's let's define a dominance victory in terms of root. Yeah. So a dominance victory is, uh, you know, there are four special cards in the deck. And when you play one of these four special cards that each have a suit plus a bird one, it's an alternate win condition. So you'll remove your score marker from the victory point track and place it on the dominance card, and you have to control three matching clearings of whatever suit that dominance card is. Or, if you have the bird dominance, two opposite corners. You're also required to have at least ten points before you can use this, right? Before you can acquire it. Exactly. Before you can play that dominance card. Before you can play it, not before you can acquire it. You can acquire it anytime, but you have to be able to play it by having at least ten points, right? Right. Ten points is the threshold for meeting the alternate victory condition you're going for of dominance. But yeah, like you mentioned, guys, where your language was very careful. You can take those cards before that point. You just can't go for dominance. You can't like play dominance, quote unquote, before you have ten points. And so you have to rule these clearings, and it's going to check whether you rule these clearings at the very beginning of Birdsong on your turn. It's going to, you know, you're going to ask, like, do I rule three clearings of this suit? Uh, And if not, then you got to go all the way around the horn through the whole 
a round of turns back to your turn before it'll check again. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about dominance is that you, it is like a permanent switch that you flip. You say, I'm no longer going for 30 points. Uh, instead, I'm going to try to rule these three clearings. And so you're, you're kind of like permanently set on that goal. And it becomes immediately the table's problem to try and, you know, suppress that effort. You not kind of permanently set. You are permanently set, right? I guess, is, is there an option to take an alternate dominance victory? Because you can't, if you can't fulfill the fact that you're taking your score marker off the board, right? Yeah, Correct. it's pretty explicit that way. Yeah, no, it's, you, you go for one, you try and shoot the moon, you're committed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't switch from, oh, I'm going to rule all the fox clearings to I'm going to rule all the rabbit clearings. As ill-advised as that decision may be, <laughs> it, you just can't even do it. So don't even worry about it. Got it. Now, thematically, guys, with a dominance victory, what is happening? Because, you know, these victory points are like favor of the woodland, right? Mm-hmm. That the woodland mm-hmm. has agreed that you are the ruler of it, right? Mm-hmm. So when a dominance victory, when you're taking your victory points off of the board and just getting, you know, a favor or whatever from a certain faction, what thematically is going on do you guys imagine? Because we don't really have a, a an answer from the RPG or from the rule book. So this is up to our imaginations. What do you guys kinda, picture is happening? I kind of figured in whatever, like, semblance of government that forms once you win the game, you have such a perfect constituency of foxes or of mice that are in different controls of different consti- like uh, districts of the woodland. Yeah, this is <laughs> well, just... We used to call them clearings, but now we call them districts. This is just uh, the root version of gerrymandering. This is 100% yeah, That's what it is. That's what I was thinking it was, yeah. I thought we're all on the same page at how wrong this dominance, <laughs> this victory type is. Yeah, is it slimy? Absolutely. But uh, hey, if it works, you know. Hey, I have the support of 75% of all foxes in the entire world. What about the mice? (laughs) The mice don't matter. We're creatures too. Yeah, I think that is it, right? You have such a hold on one of the three groups that everyone else is like vying for like 20% of the mouse Mm -hmm. vote. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I have 100% of the fox vote. So like, there's no way you're going to compare. Fox Congress. Just to play devil's advocate, like multiple factions explicitly are not all about democracy though right like oh for sure they're straight up autocrats and then like straight up theocracies going on so like yeah yeah but the people or the the denizens of the woodland decide that that autocratic society should rule them you know what i I mean just the foxes do favor design and you're sort of bending those denizens to your will overtly with a dominance victory which in you know, in in real life, root is very unlikely. You know, it's, I feel like it's hard to make people change their mind in uh, in the actual real world. But in uh, in root, it's somehow even harder. Well, so. yeah, it's re- it's reflective of the politics, right? But also, anyone feeling guilty about a dominance victory should feel just as guilty about uh, murdering their way to victory, like in the normal conditions of the game. That's a good point. <laughs> I craft my way to victory every no, you time. Don't. I never kill anybody. <laughs> I never kill anybody. He's a victim of many of your murders, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, the next part we have to talk about, guys, we've kind of hinted at it, is how viable is the dominance alternate victory condition? We've already likened it to shooting the moon, which for anyone who's actually played hearts knows how difficult that is to do. I looked up some statistics today and couldn't find anything concrete, but it felt similar to dominance in it's like less than 1% viability. 
Jake, I have a question for you. Yeah. How many total dominance victories do you think has ever been in any tournament of Root? And I'm including for this the Space Cats Peace Turtles Test Tournament, the uh, Woodland Warriors Winter Tournament, the official uh, Direwolf Digital Tournament, and the Space Cats Peace Turtles 2021 Patreon Tournament. How many dominance victories in all four of those competitions combined? And like each competition had like what thirty games, sixty games. Uh, some of some of those competitions you're being generous to. Uh, the okay. winter tournament had many games because there was a, like kind of like a Swiss style beginning yeah, sure, of sure. the tournament. Um, okay, and the I rest can... were elimination. I think the digital tournament also had some kind of Swiss rankings. Kyle, can you go into that for a second? There were a lot of games in the uh, digital tournament for sure. Yeah, I think like. For two of those, at least like around thirty games, and then okay. for the two Space Cats Peace Turtles tournaments, I think it was a bit less, but still like a good amount of games, like close to a hundred games in total. Okay, so how many of those were won through dominance? Correct. Look, I mean, I feel like just by asking me, I know it's going to be low, right? But like, is it is it zero? I don't think it is. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess two. That's a good guess, Jake. The answer is zero. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is zero. I was hopeful. Uh, For a moment, I thought it was seven because I checked the Root Digital tournament, which Uh I wasn't as familiar with. But that was actually just seven players that had done dominance. Had activated it. Right. The data on the digital tournament is very good. And so I could see actually what everyone did. And I went, oh, seven dominance plays. That blows the thing out of the water. I was like, oh, I'm going to write this whole narrative about how the base game allows dominance way more easily than the expansions. And I do agree with that to an extent. But the tournament data does not back that up. It suggests that dominance victory is as unfeasible at any point. Now, before you both start spitting a bunch of knowledge out here about why this is the case, I want to I want to throw out like at least an uninformed theory, because like I want it to not be the case that it's because dominance victory is just, quote unquote, bad or not viable. Right. Mm -hmm. But like I see how it could be more often played in digital for a couple of reasons. One, because there's probably less experienced players in general on there, which is, it's an alternate win condition, but also because um, it feels like there's just, you kind of need to find an option. (laughs) There's more, there's less strings to grasp in the base version, right? You have a little bit more options with the expansions of things to try and do when you're in last and last is like, well, what do I do? Well, I guess I can try a dominance because I have two of the clearings and maybe I'll get lucky, right? So it feels like a desperation move. I guess my question is, is like, is it only really viable when positioning is the primary thing, right? Is when those randomized clearings have been in your favor based on where your game has been played, right? Because the base game on the out of map doesn't have randomized clearings. And then the base game has at least the winner map, which is a chance for it. But that doesn't have a lot of mobility on that winter map, so it's even less likely to see a dominance, right? Well, you'd think so. I generally agree with your point, though, that at least for me on on the digital platform, I've seen a lot of Desperado dominance plays, and they tend to almost never work out. And I think the reason is exactly what you mentioned, which is that positioning and setting up for a dominance victory is as much a part of making that a successful effort as anything else. Right. But you also do need to have that little special ingredient of like favorable 
clearing distribution. Uh, Sam, I saw you raise the the finger of alarm there when Jake mentioned that the winter map might not be as um, as fortunate for. I want to say how victory. cute it was that you both put up the same finger as I said it too, and like gave me the same <laughs> smiling look of approval. I I do think that the winter map is maybe one of the best maps to go for a dominance victory on, especially as one of the uh, one of the dominance friendly factions, which we will bring up here in a moment. But I I would say largely you bring up a great point, Jake, which is that dominance seems like it should be this like last ditch effort to if you're trailing in points, this is like mm-hmm. another way to make yourself competitive. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're both right and wrong. Uh, you're right in the sense that if if you're losing the game and you know you're going to lose, going for dominance could be like a way to shake things up and potentially lead to you winning. Like that could be your only hope. So why not go for it? But I also f- feel like in most normal games, a dominance play is like generally a losing move because you're locked in and there's no way to change it. And but people by can nature, just slap you down. It's a move for the losers, right? Like you're in the bottom which is why you're going for it. Like not a lot of people switch to a dominance victory when they're in the lead. Well, you'd think so. Um, and we will also talk about this later, but there are timings. There are special timing windows for going for dominance uh, to improve your chances of having a favorable outcome. But I think that like, let's, let's briefly touch on the, uh, the other, the dominance victory that shall not be named, <laughs> which is uh, the Vagabonds Coalition. And oh. we'll, we'll dedicate a whole section to this in a moment, but dominance works the same for all factions except the Vagabond. For most factions, you have to rule three clearings when it, when it comes back to your birdsong. But for Vagabond, it's a little bit different. It's called a coalition. The conditions are the same. You have to be at 10 victory points, but you basically like hitch your horse to another faction. And if they win, you win. <laughs> yep. So this is the only condition where two players can win a game of root. It's insane. The Vagabond didn't need this extra bump to be included in this dominance thing. There are other factions that are just completely practically taking out of dominance, right? Like the Woodland Alliance is never going to win through dominance. But yet the Vagabond gets a whole alternate win where they can just hitch their whole game to somebody else's. <laughs> And Jake, I just got a question for you. Yeah, sure. In the same amount of games, in the same tournaments, the same four tournaments I've uh, uh, listed here, how many total coalitions that have won do you think? Um, I think I actually know that at least one happened because I thought I heard about it on Space Cats podcast. Mm. So I'm going to say, I'll say two again. That's a good guess. The answer is 14. Oh, wow. So really, this episode should be called Coalitions. No, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) This card actually has way more practical implications for the coalition part of the Vagabond. The tiny text at the bottom of the card has actually way more impact on the practical game than the whole alternate win of dominance. Currently. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> Hard you, to real see struggled, that you really struggled to acknowledge that fact <laughs> yeah i guess i don't think that the rats and the badgers are going to change that sure, if i'm going to sure. be real you know yeah, i understand uh, i i talked to some people on our channel 
uh, this week. Some people told me that it had been literal years since they'd seen a dominance victory. The other people that told me they saw a dominance victory lately was against Kyle when Kyle did it to them. So yeah, Kyle... baby. <laughs> uh, it felt good. Yeah. I actually really vividly remember that game. It's just so unusual. It's so unusual. Like playing against experienced players, um, usually there's a way they figure out to stop you. Yeah, so let's get into the problems with dominance because I actually think it goes hand in hand with the whole conversation we had a couple weeks ago about the table talk, mm-hmm. right? Remember that whole discussion when we were like, hey, you guys, there's no root strategy that's so good that three people working against you can't stop you. And this alternate win is daring three people to stop you. <laughs> well, almost demanding generally, right? Like, yeah. they have to address it when you declare a dominance. There's right. nothing else to do because they know, well, not they don't know, but in most conditions when you're doing it, you're going to win next round, <laughs> next bird song, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely will if the table doesn't respond appropriately. So all things being equal, when you have three factions who each get a turn to prevent you from ruling three clearings there's almost no chance that you're gonna get back to your bird song and, and still rule those clearings sometimes the dynamic is poisonous though and the factions will try and kick the can or mm-hmm. try and like bully the other factions in turn order which can then lead to a spite dominance victory, which doesn't feel good for anyone. Uh, no, I I actually advocated for this on our table talk thing. I said, if everyone kicks the can to you, you should just let the dominance victory happen. And that is as viable of a way to win on dominance as you're going to get, is a spiteful table. See, that's why I do think dominance isn't like fully out of the game yet this is why my pessimism for it is reserved because of table talk because Mm -hmm. it requires the other three to figure it out rather than just you figure it out right it puts the question to the table Mm -hmm. can you work together in a limited way to stop me and still come out the other side of that in a position where you're likely to win the game Because the real test of a dominance victory is, like, what does the aftermath look like? Because if somebody commits their entire turn to, like, really, really stopping you, well, then the other players have, like, nothing to do. So they're going to go about, you know, the business of building their engine, and they're going to totally outpace whatever faction, like, overcommitted to stopping the dominance. So there's, like, a little bit of fine balancing that needs to go into it. Yeah. But anyone who, like, overtly kicks the can is going to be, like, dunked on later, I feel like. (laughs) And... Kyle, not only them, but if you think about the faction that has to go for dominance is going to have to put so many resources into making sure that's the case that they're also probably leaving some points on the table, some cardboard that can be cleaned up. So you have two factions now that are putting themselves out of position to defend their own cardboard to achieve slash stop this dominance whole play from happening. And another two factions that can come in and clean up that cardboard. So that's kind of stuff that, especially as the person going for dominance, you're going to want to highlight to the people that are trying to work together to stop you is to point out all the ways that player one is getting away with more than player three to try to keep that infighting from happening. I feel like you have the added benefit of this meta of undervaluing the dominance victory in general right so if people are underestimating you that's all you want to happen you want them to (laughs) constantly be underestimating you because you're trying to dominate 
And right. you, it's it's so super interesting in that kind of scenario where you're leaving points in the table. Basically, that strategy is um, trying to prey on the opportunism of the players at the table and make it so that if anybody commits too hard to stopping the dominance, then they are actually letting somebody else win the game. Mm-hmm. So you're taking kind of like a passive kingmaker role, weirdly, or kind of like forcing the other players to like split their forces in such a way that it kind of <laughs> works its way back around to making dominance viable again. Um, I, I think that's like a super interesting way to, to uh, kind of pitch it in that sense, uh, especially like because it's considered so unlikely. It's considered such a dark horse strategy. Um, not even a dark horse, like a dark, like lame pony <laughs> strategy <laughs> by the root community. Um, and, you know, like while we're on this subject, like, before we explore why this might actually be good, what are the obvious problems with dominance, Sam? Yeah, yeah, this is good. Yeah, yeah. Because three cle- ruling three clearings, you think like, oh, that's not so hard. That's only one quarter of all of the clearings of the map. So that is like, as one quarter of the players of the whole game, you think that's my right to at least rule three <laughs> clearings, right? My right. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, it's super easy to make sure someone doesn't rule a clearing. You actually don't even necessarily need to battle that player. You just simply need to have more pieces in one of their three clearings. Or an equal number of pieces. Great point, Kyle. You're right. You don't even need more. You don't have to rule. You just have to prevent them from ruling. Yeah, <laughs> the threshold is very low for stopping dominance, especially and we'll get into this with some of the expansion material that becomes even easier to do rather than just pile a bunch of warriors in. So that's why it, it gets super tricky, because you can have player one go in and like battle some of your stuff. Player two comes in, battles some of your stuff, and then player three just moves five warriors into that clearing and now takes away your rule of it. Like we said, the table talk and the cooperation between three players can completely change your position from looking like the inevitable winner to the person who has no path forward of winning this game. You're simultaneously the person who has no path forward while also being the person that everybody's like staring at because you have a trigger win capability right yeah i i think the only thing that i would consider also that like i guess is the downside of a dominance i'm not sure how much of a downside this is but so many factions engines are built around scoring points or at least uh built towards scoring points and therefore when your engine doesn't quite fulfill its purpose in the same way now if your engine is specifically built towards moving and holding clearings then that's great but I don't think there's one faction that does that. <laughs> like, I mean, there are like the birds are probably the closest, right? But like they they also do it in service to points, right? So I think the fact that not only does your win condition change, but most of like your main actions, the purpose of your actions in the game changes. Definitely, yeah, because you you end up starting to care more about if you're going for dominance, you start to care more about mobilizing warriors, and your structures stop caring about points your engine doesn't matter with as far as points are concerned it, it is only about mobilizing as many warriors as possible it's about ruling as many clearings as possible and everything has to be kind of like working together to achieve that i feel like for a good dominance victory to be possible so i think the the other 
weakness of a dominance victory is that it becomes very clear to the table what your strategy is mm-hmm. and what is possible for you to even do. So like we mentioned in a different episode, like with 1v1s, like once calculation becomes possible, I feel like the factions get weaker and weaker because it's super easy to tell like, oh, you can only recruit one cat there this turn or like, you know. You don't even need to calculate at this point, right? It's just like you look at the answer on their sheet of paper. It's like, oh, three. You need three and you win. Okay, we get it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So the, the threshold for stopping the dominance is pretty low. In most in most game states, again, we'll get to timing windows in a moment. Mm-hmm. Some some specific examples that I want to highlight are uh, the lizards, who are just dominance killers. Um, if they have three acolytes or two, if the outcast is hated, they can sanctify a building in a key clearing, and instantly, they rule that clearing with their garden. And uh, so, yeah, they they are the absolute like dominance stoppers. The moles have this great ability called dig where they can place a tunnel in a particular clearing and then immediately pop up a bunch of moles. Uh, and usually with their engine, they have the ability to battle a bunch to move a bunch. So it's, it's very easy for them to mobilize a large number of warriors in a clearing, which can help them if they're going for dominance. But basically that's a, a gigantic Achilles heel. If, uh, <laughs> if you're going for dominance and the moles are in the game. Yeah. There are so many, circumstances that have become clear in the expansions that make dominance less and less viable and kyle those are two great examples the moles and the lizards there's also some cards in the enp deck um that make it even worse um so let's get into i guess like the actual attempting of dominance yeah so this is a quote from nevakineza who is once again just mvp woodland war machine contributor here shouts to nevakineza Here's the quote. If you're going for dominance, plan for it as early as possible and prepare as much as you can. Ready crafted improvements and ambushes, as well as suited cards or bird cards if you're playing as the Marquise, to tilt the balance of the attacker's advantage and preemptively disrupt the engines your opponents will need to contest you. That's the thing, is that the dominance victory, although it's this shoot-the-moon mechanic and it's this like hyper specific set of circumstances in order to be successful with this uh, alternate win, you have to recognize these things from the get go. You have to plan from it from the get go, especially with some of these factions, the cats and the lizards, especially I think you can't afford to like, you know, turn four, start to move into the clearings you're going to use for dominance. The cats and the lizards need to know right from the get-go, I'm going for mouse dominance or rabbit or fox or bird, I guess. When from the get-go, do you mean turn one? What do you mean? What's get-go? One or two. Yeah. Really? Even upon setup, the cats, which clearing they use for their keep, which is going to be a huge, that keep power of not letting enemy pieces being placed in this clearing is going to be a huge dominance deterrent. You're probably I don't I don't know if I've ever seen a cat's dominance victory that worked out when one of the clearings wasn't the keep. Yeah, I and to to clarify Jake, I think this depends on your observation from the outset of the game like what is the clearing structure of the mm-hmm. of the map? With randomized clearings, there's the potential for like clusters of uh of a, a particular suit in an area that can be hard to access. 
I see this with like the lake map and winter map most especially. But if you notice, hey, I'm starting in an area that has like a bunch of rabbit clearings. Maybe keep an eye out for that rabbit dominance when it hits the discard pile and goes to its kind of special area. And especially if that happens early in the game, then I feel like suddenly dominance is on the table. And even -hmm. if you haven't prepared for it from turn one, if it's been something that you've considered then you've got time to prepare for it as as early as like turn one or two. I guess that's what my uh, issue is with this advice, because I like this advice, but it feels counterintuitive to what we've been talking about, which is that you generally shouldn't be attempting a dominance victory. And I think we've all, but we've all agreed that like when you do it is when the circumstances apply. Right. But I think those circumstances aren't always obvious from the get go. I think that you're right. The the clearings and how they're aligned as the board state at the top of the game would be one huge indicator, but it's really about how favorable your movement is in the first few rounds. So I'm not sure if it's fair to say if you're going for dominance, you need to plan for it as early as possible. So much as if you're going for dominance, don't. And if the circumstances present themselves, this is how to look out for them. Is that, I don't know. Is that fair? Yeah, I think I think that's actually a pretty fair, uh, pretty fair way to state it. The, the thing that I would say to kind of clarify is that like mm-hmm. dominance is just like a s- special tool in your toolkit mm-hmm. that you only bring out on, on special occasions, but it's always there. And one of the advantages of what I recommend, which is in general playing a bit flexibly and a bit conservatively, one of the advantages of doing that is by flexible you can set up um, your means of getting warriors on the board in areas where they can access a lot of clearings. And in doing so, you you definitely increase your chances of, you know, if you decide to go for a dominance, like you can mobilize warriors to that point um, more easily. So like going for a flexible type of setup um, just means you have access to more strategies going forward. And like, while I, I think it's a mistake to rely on dominance for... Um, most of your wins in route. I think being able to visualize yourself winning a victory with the dominance card, like that's actually important to be able to do. And when Nebuchadnezzar says, prepare as much as you can, I do think it's it's a lot about observing like, hey, I've got presence in three clearings of the same suit. I have partisans of that suit. Mm, I've, mm-hmm. you know, that, that dominance is in the discard pile right now. Like oh yeah, those are the circumstances. Yeah, be, that sounds be right. Be ready. Be ready to respond to those circumstances when they pop up. And like, I don't know, if it's a tournament game, then I understand like sticking to your guns and going for thirty points. But like in a in a fun match, if it's if the stars are aligning, you got to shoot the moon, right? If you're if you're lowest and in those conditions, if you're lowest on the score track and in those conditions, it's kind of hard to argue opposite, really, right? I mean, we've said many times in this like in this game, like <laughs> it's hard to climb back from the bottom, and only certain factions can really do it. So I feel like more often than not in that circumstance, you're going to want to take dominance. If you own three already, if it's in the discard, if you have partisans and you're lowest. Yeah, maybe go for it. Maybe. Maybe go for it. But we should talk about, like, what what are the factions that you should be if you're going to attempt such a thing? And we've already kind of said, like, a faction with a bunch of warriors. Right, Sam? Uh, yeah, totally. And I think that this kind of goes to, this is how early you have to plan. I, I, I'm going to push back. I don't think that dominance is something that I've ever seen work unless somebody kind of was planning for it. I think there is a an argument to be made about how flexible you are. Like, kind of saying, like, oh, I could go dominance. I could kind of score points 
But if you're actually dominance is such like a small window of chance that keeping that door fully open really does mean you are constricting yourself to not scoring as many points as you could be scoring. And I do feel like it's an actual choice that is made fairly early on. There are circumstances where you could stumble into it, but we're talking about a thing with like a 0.01% chance of winning to begin with. And then like lucking into that is even smaller, I feel like. So going on with that being preparedness, you already have to be one of these four factions in order to (laughs) go for dominance, okay? I think those are cats, moles, birds, and maybe lizards. We'll talk about how lizards are both great and terrible at dominance, but um, I would say the other three are more kind of straightforward in their dominance viability. And that's because they have either a ton of warriors, which the cats and the lizards do. Moles and birds both have uh, a lot, 20, I think, each. And some of their special powers help them to get to certain clearings that they need to rule. Or in the bird's case, the actual like tie-breaking of ruling is obviously going to help with the dominance victory. We're not including the Marauder expansions here yet because those rules aren't finalized. Right. We just saw them all change. They all <laughs> yeah, changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who knows? Who knows? We're not going to. And who really knows where the those. hirelings will, will fit on the whole ruling of things as well at, sure. in final. Um, it's also fair to say that I think when it comes to Alliance, Vagabond, the Otters, and the Crows, harder for them just flat out because of the warrior situation in most of those cases, right? Like they simply don't have the ability. That's the easy way to shut them out of the running for a lot of these. Is they simply don't have the ability to get those clearings. Uh, yeah. controlled. Otters are in the middle where they're definitely not able to do it with any kind of reliability, but I also wouldn't advise going for a dominance victory if otters are in the game because right. people can kind of pay them to make sure that goes away. Mm-hmm. So mercenaries would be brutal in that kind of a situation. I mean, if you are the river folk and going for dominance, like other players can just pay for mercenaries and have you fight someone else in your clearing until your presence is reduced. Like, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's it could end up being a pretty brutal situation. But yeah, so I, I like this in general. Cats, moles, birds, lizards. And the lizards do have 25 warriors at their disposal, which is, like, a lot. Tied mm-hmm. for the most in the game. But I, I would say of, of those four, first among equals is definitely the cats. Yeah. Because of the keep and because of their ability to reach 10 points very early in the game. Yeah, that's going to get us into one of our two timing windows to activate dominance. Um, but first, I do want to touch on kind of the the dream scenario factions were against um, in that situation. We are one of these big four army factions or, or the lizards, one of the three army factions or the lizards. And hopefully we are against one other army faction and not two. If we're against two other army factions, it's already like forget about dominance victory from the get go. Like, two players with a bunch of meeples can definitely outrule one of your clearings, whether through a bunch of battle actions and then the other person coming in and ruling. It's just, there's a lot of possibilities where that's going to be stopped. Um, So hopefully we're against one other faction with the pieces to stop us. And ideally that faction is the birds. Because the birds can go into turmoil, which might cost them some to almost all of their turn. And if you can kind of time things out in a certain way with turmoil, that is definitely your best shot at a dominance victory. Also, no lizards in the game. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, profiting from a, a, you know, perfect turmoil timing. Ideally, you've played the dominance card, and then the Eerie goes into turmoil, sacrificing most, if not all, of their turn. And it comes back around to you, and you win the game. Um, and then we all see a thousand unicorns, and we all have cake. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you know those situations when you see them, right? Like, what <laughs> what would be magical when that happens? Or, like the woodland alliance gets blown up too is the same kind of thing right i think this and in almost every kind of dominant scenario it ends up coming down to bad rolls right like you just have to say that out loud like you know if if root were the type of game where it just counted the number of warriors and then like took away however many and there was no chance involved like dominance would never happen but you know the fact that you can roll a zero zero or whatever yeah (laughs) Because sometimes it happens. Yeah, I had this long conversation with people in the Discord, and it eventually came to even if everything is right, and you do everything right from the get-go, you're still going to need a couple good rolls to make sure it happens. Yep, you're going to need a couple of just bummer rolls from your opponent to (laughs) make it happen. Um, But I also think that you can set yourself up for some success with the dominance victory, um, not to like naysay completely. Um, because again, like we've tried this before and it does sometimes work. Um, but there's two <laughs> key timings that we should mention. And my favorite is the first timing window for a dominance victory, which is the race to 10 points. Yeah. Yeah. This is especially good for the cats or something. The idea behind this strategy is that you get to 10 points either before other players or right at the same time as other players. Basically, you get to it so early in the game that other factions don't have the action economy or the warriors on the board to reliably stop your dominance play. You kind of get out ahead of the game before people realize what game we were playing. It's helpful if some crafting points are involved because basically if you can get if you can play a dominance on like turn three, (laughs) it's going to be tough to stop in most cases. Especially if you've done a good job of recruiting, if you've done a good job of conserving your warriors, and uh, if the kind of clearing distribution is favorable and, and makes this your opponents is, have to stretch too much to get you. This is like a cat's dream, right? Because cats not only can score points early, they rule so many clearings on the board early. And, like, who's going to get – who's going to have the the – the engine to do anything about it if the cats know what's coming. Wow. Yeah. I, I love this timing window for cats. This is amazing. Uh, harder to pull off with anybody else. Again, everything we're talking about is circumstantial, right? I also want to, like, be careful that we, we're, like, as much as we say it's blank percent chance to happen or, like, you always need the dice to roll in your favor for this to work. That's what we talk about when we talk about shooting the moon is we are taking a very narrow path to victory. And then the narrowness is reflected in the fact there's a lot of risk involved and there's a lot of things that need to go right. It's not always just a game of statistics. Like if I go for dominance victory, it's a blank percentage chance because that's the way the statistics are. It's more of like you're always trying to line all the statistics as much in your favor as you can to make this shoot for the moon happen. I think this is kind of what the Nebuchadnezzar quote is kind of aiming at. In my mind, is kind of this early timing window because I do think that this is this is usually an extremely surprising move. Most most root players will not be expecting this kind of play because, again, like the the kind of prevailing wisdom is that 
going for dominance is ill-advised, which is maybe precisely why you should try it in your game. <laughs> right? Um, because it's such a surprise that anyone would even go for that. There's huge value in highly unexpected moves, <laughs> especially in a game where people need to prepare. It's a war game. The element of surprise actually has a, quite a lot to do with uh, your ability to win the game. And um, in terms of preparation for this early timing window, there are some very sneaky maneuvers you can do, especially as the cats, because you score early, which is to place recruiters and other cardboard in adjacent clearings, and then just use your march actions to very efficiently mobilize a crazy amount of warriors and leave your cardboard exposed forcing your opponents to make some kind of Machiavellian calculation about like how they can get ahead in the game versus stopping you and uh, kind of like planting those wedges um, in the table talk. So yeah, I I think the early play does benefit factions like the Marquis who are able to kind of score those points early and often and, you know, jump out before anyone has the chance to like mobilize an an effective defense. I would honestly say this early timing window is almost exclusively for the Marquis. I can think of maybe a play where the Eerie went builder and was able to craft a bunch of points to get to 10 in a surprising amount of time. And maybe they were also able to convince the other two factions to take out the moles. Because, again, being against the cats in an early dominance play is going to be very difficult because they have the the means to deal with it that march action is going to be able to get multiple cats in there so easily but again the eerie is spending their hand putting it into the decree for the most part so like (sighs) having those crafting cards even available at all is like going to be a heavy lift yeah so Uh, we're talking about a christmas a christmas scenario for the eerie dynasty and even that we're we're like struggling to make that work this early timing window is almost exclusively for the cats it's almost like getting a hat trick the first time in a season right god damn it yimmy chara you are a god oh i'm so pumped i'm so pumped. you got a dominance victory today sam i i literally thought about that i was like we won five zero this was the dominance victory (laughs) this is like the exact attitude i need to come in with this episode with Three goals, three clearings. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> but let's. So, uh, oh, I w- did want to mention too that the lizards, the fourth faction here, they uh, they tend to struggle because they spend cards for points, right, for scoring points. But they also reveal cards in order to recruit dudes to the board. So, if they're scoring points to get to ten victory points, then they have less dudes on the board. So it's kind of like a mutually exclusive thing when they're going for this early dominance timing window. Like, it's it's just going to be hard. Always going to be a little Mm -hmm. rough for them. All right. So we've we've talked about the early timing window. Pretty good for the cats. Everybody else is going to be highly circumstantial in a circumstantial situation. We've got the late play for our second option. And this is kind of... This one is definitely situational. This is when we've gotten so entangled that we've noticed that the table has exhausted their resources to check the person who was supposed to win. And now we activate dominance or on the precipice of them doing that, we activate dominance to kind of fly in under the radar. This is a late eerie turmoil. This is when the moles or the cats have been nearly board wiped or actually board wiped in the case of the cats to the point where like, there's not a big army left over to defend this uh, kind of like last ditch effort dominance play. 
Yeah, this is a riding the wave kind of play and is, again, a very specific type of timing window. It's like in the kind of shadow of uh, like a big confrontation. You kind of are just like, eh, I'm going to go for dominance now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sam used the analogy of flying in under the radar, but I think in this analogy we can all hear the plane screaming <laughs> towards the runway as it's barely with fuel, right? And that plane... <laughs> That plane has to be screaming, focus on the leader, not me. <laughs> Absolutely. You're trying to land it, but the pilot has just been converted into a lizard. Like, <laughs> a lot of stuff going wrong in this plane. Yeah, this is the epitome of, like, the situational one, right? The situational scenario. Yeah, but I do think that this opens it up. I think lizards, birds, and moles are more likely to find a dominance victory in this timing window. I think cats are probably equally likely to find it in this timing window as opposed to the early timing window or as likely as the other factions to find it in this late timing window. Uh, they Each of these factions have a specific set of skills that makes them uh, able to attempt this thing, but even still, what's going to matter more than those abilities is the situation at the table of everyone exhausting so many resources to stop somebody else that you're able to capitalize on. Yeah, that. if you think that you're board state is headed for some kind of aftermath situation and you see that there's like a big confrontation lining up like maybe like pocket that dominance card instead of discarding it for something else or maybe like dominance swap uh, or or save a suited card to do that on your turn it's always good to have that option like in your pocket for sure and the other nice thing about the late game timing is that by this point, usually you've gone through the deck or close to, so those dominance cards are going to be available. You'll have your pick of the litter. We didn't mention this with the early timing window, but the main problem standing in your way is that there's sometimes when someone has that card in their decree or in their hand or whatever, and you're just like not going to have access to it. And uh, so, you know, no matter how well you've prepared, you, it just ain't going to happen. Uh, oh. But the late timing, usually those cards are available. And, and plentiful and, and ready to be picked up. You're so right. I'm so glad you brought that up, Kyle, because with that early timing window, I've been ready so many times. And then that card never comes. We talked about this on the pod about the one game where I was super ready and you held that Fox Dominance card in your hand the whole game. But that's exactly the kind... That's how easy this victory is to stop, is literally somebody going... I could discard this card or this card. If I discard card A, so-and-so might be able to do a dominance victory. If I discard B, that won't happen, you know? I remember that game, and I just had this feeling. I was looking at the board. I was like, there's a cluster of fox clearings that are yeah. all, like, totally ruled and would be hard to crack. <laughs> One of them was the keep. We need to do an episode just on playing against Kyle. Ooh, that is a an episode I'm very well, prepared to do a whole deep dive on. Cause I wasn't in this game, but I vividly recall both of you holding on to separate dominance cards in a different game and table talking about it. I'd be like, yeah, I think Kyle's got that dominance card. And Kyle was like, yeah, it's cause Sam's got the other dominance card. I was like, Oh my God, they're both right. <laughs> We've been through the deck and there's only two left. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you, uh, I, You'll get good at card counting once you're mm -hmm. like, where is this dominance card I need? I need one of these specific ones, right? Yeah. For the most part, dominance cards are the most innocuous cards in the deck, but sometimes they're fissile material and you got to really recognize when that's the case <laughs> and like hang on to it. You know, it can be as important as holding on to a, a hammer against, you know, certain vagabond classes. I do want to touch on the lizards for a second. Mm-hmm. 
the lizards are both good and absolutely terrible at dominance. Um, the reasons why they're good is they have this ability called pilgrims, which means any clearing that they have a garden in, they rule. So that means that you can't just pile warriors into a clearing, that you actually need to remove all the way all of the warriors down to the cardboard in order to take dominance from them. Also, the lizards can recruit anywhere they have a matching card. So they could, if they have a bunch of fox cards, they could load up those fox clearings like nobody's business. Um, but the flip side to that is that they have no real choice over where they're able to recruit because they're at the mercy of their card draw until they get over five cards and can slightly choose which cards to keep. Also, when they're setting up for dominance and getting 10 points as the lizards are almost opposite goals. The ability, like, you have to get gardens and certain clearings and discard those cards to get points. And unless you're able to pull off a bunch of crafting points as the lizards, which is already hard to do, the outcast needs to be aligned with that. And you have to have those cards in your hand and want to discard those cards because they're not a part of recruiting extra lizards to your dominance play. You also have to make sure to bulk up the clearings where you're about to pull the dominance play. Yeah, and arguably, if you're already, like scoring points and doing well like why would you ruin that by going for dominance as the lizards like if you get a good setup like just keep going i remember there was a great situation in my scpt 2020 trial tournament finals game with brian brian was playing the lizard cult and had a great opportunity to go fox dominance and that great opportunity was still clearly a losing opportunity. <laughs> but it was like one of the best opportunities we'd seen. The clearings were bunched together. He had a bunch of lizards in them and some fox gardens and multiple clearings. It seemed like that's the situation you go for it. And even he knew there's no way in this high-level game, like, these three people are going to let me rule these clearings. Because the thing with the lizards is once they get hurt... It's bad news. You start losing cards from your hand and your ability to come back into the game is really threatened, especially if you're trying to rule clearings with, you know, the the random card draw in terms of where you can recruit. It's just not a good situation. Yeah, too much has to go right. Um, But so in trying to defend a dominance victory, right, you've played the card. You really you only have to rule three clearings at the start of Birdsong in order to win the game. But mm-hmm. there's four clearings of each suit on the board. So what's the what's the kind of like risk reward of trying to control four clearings versus three with the dominance victory? Yeah, I think a lot of people think I have to control three clearings and I want to really control three clearings uh, to make sure that that works. And I think it really depends on your table situation. If there is a bunch of warriors that can clearly easily move into two clearings, then you're right. You need to defend three clearings ultra. But in the situation where the table is action limited as opposed to warrior limited, it might be better to stretch out and go for that fourth clearing. I've done this a lot in digital. This is where I've seen the success of it. And granted, digital has a limited chat feature, which makes this 3v1 hard to prevent. But... I've noticed that if you go for that fourth clearing, people focus on really stopping you in one and you still control three. Yeah, my my experience is that going for ruling four clearings at the end of your turn is better in every single way, um, even if it means that you're kind of a little more lightly defended in two or three of those clearings. Um, mostly because it 
actively is discoordinating your opponents. Mm-hmm. If if you have, you know, your opponents are like, okay, let's split let's split the task. Like you go for this clearing, I'll go for this clearing. Well, then if one of those attacks is super successful and the other isn't, you're still going to win. And there's maybe not enough flexibility and whoever's going third right before you to like come back and fix it. Um, Plus those warriors have now separated, you know, the worst thing possible, I think for a dominance victory is you rule through clearing super well. Then you've got one army moving in and whittling down your warriors in one clearing. And then you have another army moving on top of that and taking out like one or two just to match. So going for four to me is the superior strategy in my mind for the most part. We should take a moment here to mention that the bird dominance is a bit unique. You have to rule two opposite corners, um, which is pretty unusual. Like you don't see that type of situation pop up in most root games. Of the dominance victories, it's the rarest, I would imagine. I think it is the rarest. Yeah, it has to be right. It's definitely the rarest, I think, because it's the easiest to stop. And it, this kind of cuts to the heart of it, too, where, like, you know, you have to rule two opposite corners, which means that there's no room for ruling three corners, right? Ruling three corners is totally pointless. You have to go two or four. <laughs> right. I've never seen somebody pull off the two, all, all four corners and be like, stop me. I feel like that would be, like, probably the best play you could do, but I can't imagine a situation If you've gotten four corners, you should have won by points already, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty tough. Especially with the original setup where everyone's setting up in corners. That means you've eliminated so <laughs> okay. many players. I have four corners, and I'm going to try a bird win. It's like, you would have had 51 points, bro. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I think that, yeah, so for me, the only map I've ever seen this happen on was on the winter map where the Eerie had created a situation where no one could move into one of the corners because of they ruled adjacent clearings too good. That's cool. And uh, and then they just like held the other corner. It's like Eerie or moles, right? Because moles can just be where they want to be. And right, their adjacency and... to the burrow, to their tunnels, makes them reinforcing that those two so strong and so viable. Yeah. I mean, if they're online enough to make that viable, like they're probably online enough to just go for the points. That's so, true. You well, know, but so I, many, but so many mole plays, I feel, are just like hold two clearings for the life of you, right? And so they are well designed. For if that, those that's are the two sure. that are opposite, maybe that's how that works. Yeah, I think the issue comes in with the advanced setup will shake up this idea, mm-hmm. right? Because right now all of the big factions are starting in the corners, which is this weird part of the bird dominance victory. So it, when we see cats choose a central clearing for their keep, that bird dominance card is going to have a completely different flavor because I think one of the big things stopping a bird dominance is the fact that if the cats are in the game, one of those corners, you can't place pieces in. So if you're the moles, you can't dig to that right. clearing because you can't place that tunnel to then move your guys. Right? So, I think uh, as we get away from the corners being the starting positions, bird dominance will be a little bit more in line with the other ones. Awesome. That's that's kind of good news. I guess. I, I would love to see more dominance victories. This is this is my whole thesis. Like yeah. this is why we're doing this episode, because I want to see more of it. It's also yeah. like it's a I don't know, like as much as people dog on it, it's it's part of the game. Like I love every aspect of the game. Like just as we sometimes complain about the nuances of the vagabond, especially that coalition. 
that's that's the way the designers made it so we have to deal with it and i kind of like that we have to deal with it i know some of us might like it to not be there but like i love that the fact that there is an alternate win condition just as i love the fact that there's like alternate ways for this game to play out yeah we'll get into vagabond coalitions and how much they should be included uh in a bit <laughs> but obviously the game is perfect and root is god <laughs> it's not that the <laughs> It's not that I want to be like a sycophant for the game so much as like this is what we've been presented and that's what we're going to cover, right? So we're going to do it like the way it's built and we can't change that. And I, I kind of love that we can't change that because it makes it yeah. forces us to adapt. It's it's another uh, element of asymmetry that does make the game spicier. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, in terms of like going for dominance we've talked about like the map layouts with uh, clustered clearings especially in randomized maps that uh tends to favor more like dominance style plays um are there specific maps that we should be keeping an eye on for going for dominance yeah like we keep talking about there's kind of two flavors of maps there's winter lake or there's mountain autumn <laughs> almost and that's because that uh, winter lake maps have big choke points. And so going for dominance in these uh, maps is going to be a lot easier if we can limit other players' mobility. I think, obviously, the uh, all the maps that are randomized have, when the clearing distributions is a little like out of whack, that can help with dominance victories. If you're using Syria's Woodland Companion map randomizer, then uh, and you can like make sure things are evenly distributed. I think this is going to make dominance plays even less viable. Was that what the randomizer does? Is it evenly distributes the clearing? You can make it fully random. You can make it so that like only one suit is adjacent, or you can make it like where it's like almost as evenly distributed as possible the app is like incredible that's cool yeah very detailed and the more spread out the suits are the harder it is to kind of like muster mm -hmm. your forces right. in, or marshal them into those clearings right which led a lot of people i think including crewmeister to uh say to me on the discord if you're on the autumn map don't go for it which is crazy because we've been talking about how the base game is almost more viable for a dominance victory but actually the autumn map is the worst one for it because of its even suit distribution right so what about the base deck um is favorable for going for dominance i would say the base deck is more favorable assuming you everyone's making sure no one's pulling off a favor of card i mean that's kind of the answer to a lot of the questions right get in those clearings and clear everybody out right after a favor has happened <laughs> assuming someone can't do another one immediately like the tinker or something um you that's a great time to go for dominance when everyone's been checked when the map is empty if assuming you have forces left over right that's a great example of the kind of like second timing window that we've mentioned right that's yes. sort of an aftermath uh, timing window is like once a favor has dropped immediately go for dominance in those clearings and it's going to be very tough to like stop that for the most part and i say the base deck is better just because there aren't a lot of like crazy effects that would impact going for a dominance victory at all somebody gets an extra move maybe that could help with an extra with the dominance stop somebody gets an extra battle during daylight I, maybe that helps with the dominance stop but there are several cards in the EMP deck, such as like 
false orders, which is just a dominant stopping card. And other than, like, favor is a dominant stopping card, but it's a very hard card to craft. Whereas, like, false orders is a very easy card to craft. Everyone will craft it if they have the chance, and then almost certainly use it on you if you attempt a dominance victory. Other cards to watch out for include Propaganda Bureau and uh, a Suited Partisans card, right. which, like we said, there's a low threshold for stopping dominance. Either of those two cards can just tip the numbers ever so slightly in your favor enough to put the kibosh on somebody's pretensions to a dominance victory. Yeah, and uh, Soup Kitchens is a card where it makes tokens count for rule, and tokens count for rule twice, Okay. And this matters for no one. <laughs> okay? There's only one faction that could truly take advantage of it. Only one of the four... Oh, well, I guess molds have tokens. I guess you could make your tunnels cats, count as two. Right? But it's the cats, right? Cats have tokens, and you can pile multiple tokens in a clearing. And if you're the cats, and you have one workshop in each of the clearings in order to craft soup kitchens, like, more power to you. Because there's no way you did that. I've yeah, never that's... seen the cats actually craft this card, let alone the same game they're going for dominance and are in a good position to do it. That's just like stars aligning on top of like finding a lucky penny heads up. It's crazy. This is my new strategy with the cats. <laughs> Soup kitchens, turn one. What's yeah, your triple <laughs> workshop opening in three different suits so that then I can build a sawmill eventually that can accumulate wood. And then I'll somehow have enough points to go for a dominance victory. This is going to be great. Three workshops might be 10 points, honestly. <laughs> I know, it's just but when are you how building many turns is it going to take you to get all that wood? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say, like, you're going for that on, like, turn five, and then it's just way too late. A lot of overworking. Rushing yeah. a dominance as the cats is already such a better strategy that I think that soup kitchens is just annoying and unnecessary. Okay, so for our, for our last... Uh, our last gasp of dominance, we're going to definitely talk about the thing that's most commonly seen with dominance victories, and that's coalitions. This is the dirtiest vagabond play you can imagine. <laughs> we up here on our high horses that we've hitched oh boy. with the, the vagabond to another faction. Uh, I spit upon you. No, I'm just kidding. It's like, wait, are we above the other factions in this analogy? I, I made a confusing analogy. It's late <laughs> over here. Sorry. Um, so, so yeah, basically, I, I feel that coalition victories are sort of the, like, weird um, game-distorting mechanic that the designers created so that Vagabonds could feel included in Dominance victories, and that it's actually had, like, super game-warping effects as the kind of, you know, re- new releases and expansions have come. This This continues to be the one element that always rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, as more expansion content has come out that, like, totally stop dominance victories from happening when it was already hard to do, um, nothing has come out that stops coalitions from happening, and nothing ever will. Nothing ever can. (laughs) The coalition is unstoppable. The Vagabond decides that you're his partner, and you're married to that Vagabond. Whether you like it or not. I will say as much as I kind of praised this earlier on for being like, you know, it's just a part of Root. I will say it is the most like get off of me part of Root that like I can have. It's like get away. I am doing something. You don't get to just leech on, you little freak. 
<laughs> so I get I get the frustration. Yeah, no, it it's totally crazy. Um, also, I will say there's this weird thing where a, a coalition can only happen of games with four or more players, but dominance cards are revealed when there's only two players. So there's this weird thing where at two players, there's no dominance cards even in the deck. Each one is removed from the deck. You can't dom swap as the molds in a two-player game. Um, and then three-player dominance becomes viable, but Vagabond, no coalitions. And then at four-player, all rules are in play. Oh, okay. So it's it's only four players where this is... Yeah, four or more. I yeah, understand. it's... It, it's just a weird uh, thing that I noticed on this time of reviewing the rules that actually two, three, and four actually have kind of different rules, especially with these alternate vid. I suppose that's like a balance issue in terms of, I mean, that's just a balance issue because in a two player game, what the fuck? And then the three player <laughs> game, you know, fuck you. And then the four player game, that's just the way it goes. Like, <laughs> right? as Absolutely. we'll see, it's possible in a four player game to get fuck you even still. Um, <laughs> Yeah, which so, we will definitely discuss in the moment. I would love to take this moment to mount a defense of coalitions. Oh, interesting. I think coalitions as are super the only necessary. person who's won with coalitions in a tournament. That's interesting for you to say. Um, I will say though that th- there was an open forum before the tournament asking what should we do about coalitions, and I said ban them from the yeah. tournament <laughs> outright. I said I think they're trash and they should definitely not happen. And he they said, were still allowed. Smoking a cigar with his feet on the desk, preparing to make <laughs> such a coalition win later in the tournament. Well, Just they ban said they them. were permitted. They were permitted, so yeah. I, I went I'll for it. I'll show you what they can do. No, for <laughs> real. I actually think that a lot of the Root community... Uh, First of all, let's just preface this with no tournament has officially banned coalitions. Really? That's kind of crazy. Every tournament has included them in some capacity. I'm shocked that. Whether so it goes to a special finals round. of tournaments. Oh, yeah. That's tournament a good point. Tournament finals have not okay. permitted them because you can't have two winners. Like That's got to be a difficult way to manage a tournament where somebody can break your format because usually tournaments are scheduled where the winter progresses, right? But there's multiple. It forces tournament organizers to create an entirely new scoring system. One that takes into account that your win is somehow worth not the same amount (laughs) if you're the vagabond and co-aligning. Get off of me, you little freak. (laughs) I'm trying to win this tournament. Yeah. But outside of all that kind of headache stuff, I want to say that I think the coalition element of the Vagabond is actually kind of interesting if you look at it outside of like a tournament point of view. For sure. If you're looking at Root as an ecosystem and everybody is spending their turns like bashing the Vagabond uh, or if the Vagabond is like racing to get a quick 10 points or is looking around and is not feeling very confident, you always got to keep in the back of your mind that they might align themselves with the person in last place and so that's like one of the ways that kind of encourages you to keep a close game so that like you're not forcing two players at the back of the pack to like join forces and overtake everybody else so i can see how thematically like or like in the spirit of the game that might have made sense like early on but i think as the kind of expansions have come out as we've like played more games as like tournaments have happened coalitions just really stick out as this like really weird um thing that kind of distorts the the fabric of the game almost too much i would say well 
Yeah, because coalitions were supposed to be the footnote on the dominance victory, and instead dominance are the footnote on the coalition victory. Ooh. I think that's what's become the issue. Nailed it. Um, also, the fact that the Vagabond is already strong and doesn't really need coalition to convince us that it's strong, <laughs> like it's fine. That's it, the yeah. issue. If you were losing as the Vagabond to the point where you needed an alternate win condition, you should lose the game. <laughs> Come on. We have enough information now to know how strong the Vagabond is in most settings. So, like, uh, yeah, again, I think it was included in this way to, like, make the Vagabond feel like it's, you know, can still participate with this card, that it's not just a extraneous thing that it can't participate in. But as we have more information now, I think the Vagabond doesn't need the help, even if it's, you know, all in a all in, uh, good-spirited way to include that faction in the game. Um, but there, there's one scenario that I think is kind of fascinating with dominance victories and coalitions with vagabonds, and that's when there's multiple vagabonds in the same game. Yeah. Because it is possible for the vagabond to form a coalition with the other vagabond, and then for the second vagabond to form a coalition with another player. Don't. Leaving a (laughs) 3v1 scenario. And Jake, I know what you're saying. Get off of me! There's two of these little freaks! (laughs) I call this the... uh, the, This can only be described as a daisy chain of despair. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I think there there is one interesting way for two Vagabonds to both go for coalitions. And that's if they co-align with uh, the other two factions, like, separately creating a 2v2 kind of scenario. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think that we can all agree that there's at least the potential for some interesting game states to emerge from that and some like kind of back and forth, like, you know, tit for tat kind of play instead of just a 3v1, like you're just ganging up on one player. Yeah. Like that doesn't sound very fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, Jake, uh, I need to know how many times in a tournament has it ever happened where a vagabond coalitions with a vagabond who coalitions with another player to win the game? Zero. What's your guess? Zero. The correct answer is one. What? That has actually happened. It happened against Marcus the Cat, a frequent contributor to this podcast. Oh, my gosh. Um, and my heart goes out to him. I know Billy was a part of that coalition. I've played with Billy. He's... Like that's Great. a life event. Like that's Trickster. going in Marcus the Cat's obituary is like was victim to double vagabond. Coalition. I think Leader Games itself has like considered rule changes based on that game, and maybe Whoa, rightfully so. Cool. I just think that maybe like it could just be like for competitive play, we don't consider coalitions because I think you're right, Kyle. I think in casual play, it is a fun flavor to add to the game. We've we've talked about how dominance yeah. really does add a different dynamic to the game that can be really refreshing and really put people on their toes. So I, I do like having it as a part of the game, but for tournament play, especially elimination tournament, having multiple winners gets confusing and the vagabond doesn't need the help. Yeah, feel- everyone should immediately send some flowers to Marcus the Cat just for like <laughs> bringing up this, this dr- yeah, dreadful sorry, memory. <laughs> I feel like this is a thing we're going to talk about more in Root in the future of just like, as we design root or as we think about root for tournament play in general, we have to acknowledge all the randomness that comes within its design. And, you know, tournaments are meant to be as orderly as possible, but this game is far from orderly, right? Not only in the way the players interact and the factions interact, but just the way the situations occur. 
So I like the dominance and uh, to a lesser extent, the coalition are in the game. And regardless of how we feel about them, they're here to stay. So we have to address them. Go for dominance. This is my recommendation to everybody. Like if you never practice it, then you'll never recognize a good situation to go for it. Mm. And 99% of your dominance attempts will fail, but that's actually just good practice. Um, If you have never tried to shoot the moon, then you'll land among the stars and hopefully get to 30 victory points, which is what you should do. <laughs> yeah, we all want to be amongst the stars. Wait, what's this metaphor? Hold on. If you no, don't you shoot for try the moon, to you shoot won't fall into the sun and be in center. No, wait, hold on. <laughs> I, I think you should go for, for dominance. If you have gone for a dominance victory and gotten it, let us know over on the Woodland War Machine Discord, part of the Good Time Society Discord channel. Um, we want to hear your dominance stories. We know they're few and far between, but that just makes them all the better. So I like, know you know them. I was trying to solicit stories for this podcast, and people didn't want to say them. But I want everyone shame. who is lost to a dominance victory or one doing dominance to uh, you know tell us your story. How did it happen? Because only through that could we get a better lens of how we're going to rescue this shoot the moon mechanic of root. Here's a quick story time. Uh, Marcus the Cat mentioned that the most recent dominance victory that he had seen was actually against me on the Root Digital platform. <laughs> and I remember this game so vividly. Um, so what happened was uh, I was playing the Cats. And I think Marcus was playing the Eerie Dynasties in that game. Um, I think he said the Woodland Alliance. Maybe he was the Woodland Alliance in that game. Yeah, but th- there was a situation where uh, the Vagabond had gone like really, really hard at the Eerie and kind of left the Marquise alone or like had kind of kneecapped the Marquise early and then turned their attention over to the birds. And in the the same turn when the birds were going to fall into turmoil, I activated dominance and just created the situation that it was pretty much impossible to stop. Like the birds didn't have a turn to work with and the other two factions had to like try and reach out to like slap down the cats. And it just was, uh, it was too early in the game for them to have significant forces to do so. And uh, that's just one of the situations. You got to keep a sharp eye out because uh, that dominance is just sitting in the discard pile ready to be picked up. And I happen to have enough warriors on the board. And, you know, the cats have that march action. Like we didn't talk about that that too much, right. but like being able to march two moves uh, is just the most efficient way to like pile up on uh, get a dominance. Victory. I want to piggyback on Kyle's advice of trying dominance now. Also, like, if you're going to try it anytime, try it now because it's super unpopular <laughs> and <laughs> and people think it's not viable. So all the more reason to do it now. So if you're going to be underestimated, this is the time. The element of surprise. of surprise. And that's it. That's the only element you're going to have working for you because everything else about <laughs> dominance victory is kind of working against you. But you do have the element of surprise. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad we talked about this today. Uh, what are we discussing next week, friends? Ooh, next heavy week? sigh. This is no, no, not a heavy sigh. I everyone get freaking excited yeah. because yeah. we are doing the heaviest deadlift that Wooden War Machine has ever done. We are tackling all nine thousand vagabonds in the same. Wait, no, how many are we doing? We're just gonna do the first couple, right? We're doing. We're doing two episodes of The Vagabond. 
just because the Vagabond is complex, right? Not only is there a lot of mechanics to discuss, but there's a whole lot of meta around this little guy. So I feel like yes. he deserves uh, a, a number of conversations. For one pawn, he sure causes a lot of controversy. <laughs> well, now there's nine pawns if you have that adorable Vagabond pact. I mean, come on. Leader games give us individual meeples for the Vagabond classes. They're so good to us. Oh, my God. They're so cute. And we haven't even talked about the hireling that's inspired by the Vagabond. Okay, you two. Oh. Save it for the podcast. <laughs> Do we have any thanks to give out before we retire for the evening? Yes. I want to do a big thanks to Crewmeister, Garrick S, Nitro Rev, Marcus the Couch, shout out to Nebuchadnezzar, Opie's Funeral, and Prestain? Yeah, but Marcus the Couch is the couch. (laughs) Did I say Marcus the Couch? Guys, the Timbers game was really fun. Did I tell you guys that? What happened? I don't know. I want to do a big thanks to Crewmeister, Garrick S, Nitro Rev, Marcus the Couch, Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) Opie's Funeral, and Preston. Will you shout out the entire Timbers roster? I want to give a big thank you to Steve Clark, Dario Zuparich, Larry Smabiala, Claudio Bravo, Something Fine Ronkin, Diego Chara, Yimmy Chara, Diego Valeri, Felipe Mora, Dyron Espria. Dyron Espria. Oh, had a great game. Well, let's chant what we chant at every Timbers game. <gasps> root, root, couch, root, 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 root. root. <laughs>